Oh man, do you like to have a seat? Uh, I have the great dubious pleasure of um, completing our mini-series on the Psalms that we've been doing over the summer. And I'm speaking from one of the greats today. It's um, inspired countless songs of worship throughout the ages. It's parts of it, it's full of those pithy little nuggets of beautiful truth that you'll see on fridge magnets and soft first posters of sunsets and kittens. So even if you don't know this one, you actually probably already do because it's all over the place. Just in case you weren't here for Pete's brilliant introductory talk um, at the start of the season, I, d uh, I just want to begin by making sure we're completely on the same page about the genre of the Psalms. They are part of what uh, makes up the wisdom literature, along with Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Biblical wisdom is rarely presented as a single belief or rule, contrary to what your puritanical nan might have told you. So, uh, some of the wisdom literature reads as very straightforward and practical sort of cause and effect wisdom. The righteous are rewarded of good things, the wicked are punished. The righteous trust in God, the foolish trust in other things and it gets them into trouble. They might trust in a 10 year old to put sunscreen on their back and then they will burn. <laughs> yep. Cause and effect wisdom. It's the, uh, the wisdom of the Ten Commandments. If you walk in obedience with what the Lord God has commanded you, you will live and prosper and prolong the days in the land that you will possess. And if you don't, you don't. And of course, quite a big chunk of the story of the people of Israel that follows, follows this pattern of obey and prosper, disobey and suffer the consequence. And I think at this basic level, it's where we often can stay when we think about the Old Testament and Jewish wisdom. But only seeing this side of the coin means we miss something very powerful and very prevalent in ancient wisdom. Because the ancient Hebrews knew just as well as we do that the, there is another side of the coin. Life isn't just that simple. It isn't just a cosmic bank account of good and evil. The other side of the coin is a much more pragmatic, much more realist, introspective wisdom. Wisdom that knew how much God loves it when we're real with him. And it runs through all the way, this, um, all the way through this uh, genre of the wisdom literature and all the way through the Old Testament alongside the other. The wisdom of what it felt like to be the people of God. The Psalms are poems. They are lyrics to songs about what it is to be God's people. They are not doctrines or sermons or treaties. So they should be read this way. They should be read as art. With all the license for hyperbole and emotion that you'd afford any of your favorite love songs. Or songs about life. Songs about pain. Brian Adams didn't really do everything he did for you. Not everything. Be realistic for a second. It's ridiculous. And we're fine with that. I'm pretty sure I could have come up with a better example of art, but um, that's what just came to me this morning. Um, most of the Psalms were written when the people of Israel were in agony, in exile, in loss and disappointment. And they're written about how to praise him when we don't feel like praising. They are the place to come and deal with the condition of the human heart. Not in theory or rules, but in actual case studies of the things that we wrestle with. 
They hold space for us. They're empathetic with us. They don't try and um, distract us or cheer us up out of what we're feeling. They don't judge us or offer a solution. They invite us to wrestle and to swear and to beg for more and to rejoice and to come to God with all the reality that we feel, the good, the bad, and the hideously ugly cry face. Kathleen Norris, a contemporary Benedictine poet and essayist, writes, and there it is, look at us. The Psalms do not theologize or explain away. In expressing all the complexities and contradictions of human experience, they defeat our tendency to be holy without being human first. Let us agree, shall we, as a church, to be human together first. In all of our efforts to be holy, let's be human together first, because that's where the real meat is as we do this together. Uh, yesterday, uh, I was, had come back from the beach after just one of those perfect beach mornings with three children. They're not actually that easy to come by, but the, the ocean was perfect. Nobody got hurt. Nobody dropped their picnic in the sand. It was just one of those, yes, California is wonderful kind of mornings. And uh, I was showering off with our youngest child, um, getting all the sand off us, and she refused to listen to my wisdom about keeping your head at that angle so that the soap can't get in her eyes. And she got soap in her eyes, and she yelped in pain. And without missing a beat, brace yourself, it's a bit shocking, she screamed, ah, I hate God! <laughs> I mean, because I'd been, you know dwelling on this principle of God wanting us to be real with our feelings, I had to sort of praise something about it, maybe less of the hate, I don't know. Uh, but you know, kudos, five-year-old Margot. It's a bit of an intense ontological leap to make though, isn't it? Golly. It's the lofty and grandiose Psalm 103 that we're looking at today. This one isn't given any specific uh, historical context like some of the other, there's none of the, um, you know, death to my enemy and their mama too, stuff at the beginning of this one. This one is given as a general psalm about how to handle life. First one, praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Remember, we've mentioned a few times that parallelism is a big thing in the, in the psalms, sort of saying one thing and then saying it again the other, the other way to really ram the point home. Praise the Lord, verse two, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. The word we have for forget and remember in the English really are not good enough for what the Hebrews meant about remember. Is they're a very shallow uh, rendition of the same word. This is not sort of, you know, remember, recall, list it off. This is like hold, ruminate, remember what has been done for you. Remember what you already know. Over and over again, this idea comes up in the Bible, almost like we have a predisposition to forget the good stuff almost like the bad stuff is what it's much easier to hold on to. And I think this is certainly true for me. The, there have been more power in the negative and hurtful experiences of life and words said to me than they have in the positive, I think, overall. Every time I see a pineapple, I remember being a 15-year-old in art class who we were all given a task of I don't remember what we were told to do, but as I brought my still life pineapple up to my art teacher, she said, that's not very creative. And I heard it and I wore it and I carried it for a decade as I'm not very creative. The damage that did to me 
And of course, I am creative. We are all creative. We're all made in the image of God. He is creative. Every single one of us likes, has within us the desire to make something that is not yet there and create order out of disorder that naturally exists. I do strongly believe, obviously to greater or lesser degrees, but we are all creative. But I don't think I'm that unusual in this propensity to uh, let the bad things hurt more than the good things heal. I think our brokenness means that the negative, the pain is much easier to recall, much more likely to shape us than the positive, the glorious, the good. So this is where we're to start. Summary of verse one and two, you wanna know how to handle life, praise God from your inmost being, and to do this, choose to remember and actively meditate on the good things that he has done for you. Carrying on then, verse three, <clears throat> what does he do? forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He forgives you. He heals you, he redeems you, he crowns you, he satisfies your desires. He's compassionate, he's gracious, he's abounding in love. It's not a lot not to like there, is there? Even on a bad day. The translation um, in the NIV of verse five is a little bit clunky, actually. The New James had it as, the word for desire, as mouth. He satisfies your mouth with good things. But neither of these words is actually quite right. It comes from the Hebrew word edyek, which means ornament. And remembering the parallel thing, um, it's the second half of the verse which kind of helps us understand what this really means. It should be more translated something like, he will make your disposition youthful, you will continue to soar as the majestic e eagle. I can only imagine that the ancient Hebrews sagged and squidged and leathered and drooped the same way that we do with with age, and they needed to know too that the best is yet to come, in contrast with every single message that the world pummels at us the same way we do. The thing with eagles um, is that despite being the strongest, most majestic, fearless, and in fact one of the most longest living birds, they go through a regular molting process. So throughout their adult life, they'll shed a lot of their feathers during which time they will look really sickly and weak, but then when the process is complete, they'll be completely renewed. They'll have the look and feel the same as they did when they were young. At the core of our earthliness is aging and decay, but God works differently. He renews. It's the exact opposite of decay. He improves. Amen to that, staring down the barrel of my 39th birthday. And again, I say amen. Um, I have an interesting tidbit about the reference to Moses in verse 7. The psalmist quoting, is quoting Exodus 34, where God meets Moses on the mount. And it says the exact same thing there about the Lord and his compassionate gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. They're identical until in Exodus it says, following on from that, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. But here it continues very differently. 
He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger, anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removes our transgressions from us. Chalk and kosher cheese, are they not? The psalmist is looking forward to the totally different thing that is coming with Jesus. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's just such a beautiful image, isn't it? And interestingly, north and south wouldn't have done the, quite the same thing because you can measure the distances between the poles, not that they'd have known that yet. But east and west, the um, Hebrew word for east is kedem, meaning everlasting. As far as anything can possibly be from anything else further than that, that's how set right we are. But there are still a couple of snags, aren't there, for those of us that are sensitive to a snag. If you didn't spot them, I did. In fact, as well as verse 11 where it says something like this, we've got another two mentions of those who fear him. All of this is on offer for those who fear him. This isn't fearing uh, smite or wrath or anger. Jesus said, don't be afraid, over and over and over again. Perfect love as we know it is the preserve of God. And that casts out fear, it says somewhere else. There is no fear in God. In God. That's what John tells us in 1 John. It doesn't make any sense that he'd want us to fear him so that we could know more about him and so that his love could make us more like him, which necessarily involves having no fear. It's just an issue of logic. We're supposed to be in awe of him, dwell upon his beautiful, glorious, holy love, which is so different to the love that we can know in this life so much of the time. To fear him is to simply respond appropriately to him but it's got nothing to do with being afraid. Carrying on, 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and remembers its place no more. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. God's love is described as in, in a number of ways in the Bible not to be reduced to any one of them, but as sort of like different colors of the love rainbow, if you like, making up together an almost inconceivable concept for us of just how great his love is, but given each of different attributes of the way that we can understand and relate to. So we've got creator, we've got judge, we've got lover, we've got friend. The shades of the omnipotent, um, powerful ruler, the kingly love in this one. But fatherly love is really what this psalm's about. It's really what we're supposed to ponder on here. But before I go into that, I'm going to go on a quick tangent about gender, as is my want. The bottom line is, God doesn't have one gender. Jesus calls him father. Jesus was definitely a male. 
So yes, there does seem to be some gender implied. But not the earthly created, broken, opposing forces of male and female that we might be um, accustomed to. Those are so far from the point. In Galatians, it says that there is no male or female in Christ Jesus, the same way that there's no um, dividing lines um, on the basis of power, on the basis of race. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Gender divisions are only evidence of our earthly brokenness. He hasn't created anything about you on the basis of your gender. You are his child. We are all his children individually, every single one of us. Which, and I know that that isn't an issue for everyone, but if it is, then I feel like that for me, in, in coming to a place of healing about who God made me as a woman as opposed to a man, particularly, I have to say, when it came to leadership in church, this was where I started. It was seeing myself as a child rather than a daughter was the place that I needed to begin. So I know if father is difficult for some because of uh, the male characteristics implied of that love, and we don't want it to be limited to maleness, I genuinely believe that's okay. Call him mother. Call her mother. Call him her primary caregiver. When he wants us to understand the side of him that's best likened to a father, it has nothing to do with gender. Calling him father isn't what's important. It's just knowing what his love is like in all its sparkling array of qualities. That's what's important. And I know Ed uh, got into this recently, but we do appreciate that the word father is just difficult for some people because we didn't have good dads or we didn't have present dads at all. And I think this is true for, for all of us to some degree or another because not one of us had a perfect dad or mum. Not one of us has experienced the perfect love of the father or mother. And fathers and mothers, as they necessarily do, shape our view of what God is like. Woe betide you if your father or mother was a church leader. Because then it's giganticized by a zillion. But without knowing anything about it, we come to perceive certain things about God through the way that we received love from our parents. So we can think he was absent like he was. We can think, sorry, we can think that he's absent like our parents were. We could think that he's critical or narcissistic or weak or doesn't defend us or whatever it was. Remembering, of course, that our parents are only human too. So it's vital to actively and deliberately reconstruct your view of God, the father or mother or primary caregiver, if that's easier for you. All this gender stuff is about to get a little bit more interesting because in verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The word for compassion is derived from the Latin conjunction um, for the, literally means to suffer with but it is nowhere near reaching the depths of the Hebrew word. Rechamin is the word for compassion, and it comes from rechem, meaning womb. When the psalmist uh, said compassion here, what he meant is much more denotive of the love of a mother. And it's not for the only time. In Genesis, God maternally broods over the void like a hen over her eggs. In Deuteronomy, the same thing, like a mother eagle. Isaiah proclaimed, proclaims that he comforts us like a mother comforts her child, giving them her breast to suckle. It's visceral, isn't it? Hosea says that God protects us with the fierceness of a mother bear guarding her cubs. And here, too, it's got notes of that fierceness. The word implies this overwhelming, visceral love that you feel for the mothers in the room. 
in the heady um, roller coaster of emotions in the days following birth. It's hard to describe the strength of feeling involved in the first few hours and days post-birth. Your hormones are literally wreaking havoc with you as they tell your body that you're no longer growing something here, but you need to feed it from your breasts. So your progesterone plummets within hours of giving birth and um, prolactin rises and all these other things. It's like a, it's insane. I can say that, and I know that, I don't know a single mother that doesn't testify to the same thing. You never experience feeling like this. It's just all of the feelings almost at the same time in, in a strength and a power that is impossible to relay. Chiefly among these feelings <coughs> is a fierce, terrifying, newfound love of this thing that you've made and a fierce and terrifying determination that you will not let anything happen to it. And it doesn't stay at the same level of chemical intensity for very long, but it doesn't go away either. I remember um, when Evie was five, we were doing what all London parents do. Uh, we were battling the 21st century saber-toothed tiger known as the micro-mini scooter. You may well be aware, but London life um, involves a lot of pedestrianism, and their little legs mean that they're not very good at that, so we get around that with scooters. But scooters are terrifying, because London's roads are terrifying. Apparently, a pedestrian is hit by a motor vehicle every 12 hours in Greater London, and it's a really, really scary, stressful process. And obviously, we train them um, to wait for us at the road and to avoid cracks and dog poo and other people, but it's still a very, very sort of constant adrenaline experience of going out with your children at any moment. I saw it again in London. We were there uh, last month. And it just reminded me, I think this is one of the reasons I'm less stressed here. I mean, it's nothing to do with the probiotics or the yoga or the general laid-back lifestyle. It's just that the microbinies are now gathering rust in the garage. We drive everywhere. Anyway, this one time, um, Evie has stopped at a road, like she's trained to, and I'm catching up with a monstrosity of a double stroller with the other two in it. And I look, you know, we look together, we check both ways, this way, that way, that way again. And I say, yep, it's fine to go. And after I've said that, I look up again and I see a car reversing and I have a sense that he's not looking extremely fast. And somehow, I cannot explain what happened, I swung the double buggy round behind me and put the brake on and I lurched forward with my ample right buttock, stopped his car, thumped on his trunk, denting it significantly and screamed, no! What's where you're going, you expletive, expletive, expletive. <laughs> and, you know, it shocked the children, it shocked him. He came out and was extremely apologetic. And I don't think he'd seen what I'd done to his car. Um, people were staring. And I don't know if you know this about me, I am not one for public display of emotion, ever. And my overwhelming feeling is I have no idea where that came from. And I am quite sure that every parent in the room has a story of something similar, such as the strength of a parent's love, and of course, not remotely, um, is this just the sole preserve of parents. I know that people who aren't parents can act and behave in ways like this as well. But the scope we would go to, out of, to step outside of our normal behavior to protect our children, tellingly often in ways that we wouldn't protect ourselves or defend ourselves, and if it's not to curb a physical threat, then an emotional one or a social one, I will not let you hurt my child. 
you will not be allowed to destroy their body or their mind or their belief that they are lovable and important. And if we, mere mortal, broken, fumbling in the dark parents, feel like this, how much more does God, how much more? As high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is his love. In verse 14, there's some noteworthy parallelism. Um, he says, he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. It can sound a bit like we're nothing, dust. But the point is only that he knows what our life is like down here. He knows that it's not like it should be, it's broken. And it's this beautiful non sequitur. And you'll hear it a lot around here, I hope. He loves us when we obey, and he loves us when we are dust. Or in our parlance, there is nothing you could do to make him love you any more, and there is nothing you can do to make him love you any less. It's such a powerful and important truth. Um, I'm nearly finished, but on the subject of perfect parental love that we learn through God, I've just got one more point on the references to anger. You might have heard some of the theories um, about God's anger in other churches. Um, he's angry with us because of our sin, but then Jesus took all the anger when the Father turned his back on him on the cross, and so we're in his debt, but really he is angry. Um, we just can't get enough of being angry because he's angry with us. It's, it's not quite what we believe here, and it's not an uncontentious point. But it does maybe feel like, feel like there's some hints of that going on. If we look at verse 8 and 9 again. Slow to anger, not harboring it forever, but harboring it some. Every single thing I know about parenting, which is like a bit, I haven't got the teens yet. <sighs> Lord help us. Um, but a decade as a parent and occasional professional experience in some early intervention training that I um, run. Decades of research have shown that having a sense of secure attachment with a primary caregiver leaves children happier and healthier by every measurable scale. In self-confidence, empathy, compassion, resilience, reaching their intellectual capacity, and then later in life, a better ability to regulate emotion, to reach their intellectual capacity, uh, to preserve their physical health, as well as relation, relational health, and ultimately, they're more likely to live longer. All that just because of a secure attachment to a caregiver. Fear of a caregiver is never, ever beneficial to this, so the research shows. Persistent anger from a caregiver is a profound threat to secure attachment. If the one that you um, are most in need of becomes the one you're most afraid of, all kinds of damage is done, and without intervention, this child will grow into an adult that's much more likely to be emotionally unavailable, um, incapable of trust, expect their emotional needs to be neglected, none of the stuff that we want as healthy people in healthy relationships. Um, just to check in with the parents in the room, this is not about being perfect. There is huge grace to this stuff. Obviously, we all get angry from time to time out of fear um, and exhaustion and exasperation because you've been asking them to put their shoes on for three and a half hours and they still haven't done it. I'm not talking about being, parent, uh, being a perfect parent. This is about um, persistent displays of anger that, um, that aren't repaired, that sort of the, the rupture that is created by that isn't repaired. That's where the damage is done. Nevertheless, you cannot convince me 
that God, knowing that he's the perfect parent, by whose love is by definition the most safe, most loving, compassionate and secure. You cannot convince me that he wants us to fear at him or that he's gonna harbor anger against us, any of his children, for any amount of time. It makes no sense with everything else that we know about him. So what does this psalm mean about not harboring it forever then? Hmm? It's messianic prophecy. It's about the consequences of our sinfulness being eradicated on the cross. God's anger has always existed. Jesus was in perfect step with God the Father. And Jesus got angry. But God is not angry with his children. He's angry with the screwing up. He's angry with the hurt and division. He's angrier with the barrier that it causes. He's angry with anything that damages our belief that we're lovable and important to him. How could we as human parents feel angry about things that threaten our children if the perfect parent was indifferent towards them? He's not angry with us because of the cross. Because the fullness of God is present in Jesus on the cross and in that moment, God in his fullness destroys sin and all of its power so that we can be held by the perfect parent, so that we can receive the limitless, perfect love of our father, our mother, our creator, judge, king in heaven, no matter what. It, um, it struck me again, preparing this talk, looking at, as we've gone through this series, how much of what we pray when we invite people to come um, forward for prayer at the end is, is language that we've taken from the poetic and the prophetic in the Psalms. These are some of the most profound and life-changing truths in the whole Bible. And... Um, I, there, I mean, there are some fantastic writings, teachings on the Psalms. Um, I've read loads of it this week. It's just so brilliant. It's just so insanely true and incredible how this ancient wisdom is still so relevant today. But one thing that really struck me as I looked through some of the best books on this stuff is they're very often written by people that don't believe in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when they get to these truths, they go, so now ruminate on it, swallow it, hold it, believe it, let it change you, like work, essentially work to make this truth change you. And it just sounds so exhausting because this isn't our work to do. This is the Holy Spirit's work to do. All we have to do is open ourselves to him and say, yes, please change me. Please meet me. Please show me how true this is. And so what I want to do now, um, a little bit different than we often do, is just for you to sit exactly where you are and you don't have to close your eyes, but you can close your eyes if you'd like to. What we normally do is we ask people to stand like this. And there's a good reason for that. Ed was talking about the prayer training. There's a good reason for that. Usually it's for the person that's praying for you to see what they believe the Holy Spirit is doing, to have literally, not with spiritual eyes, with actual these eyes see, because people respond in different ways. It can often be a really big indication of, of what's going on for them. Just as We've learned that's just how it works. Um, 
and I know that the model can seem, like, can seem a bit sort of culty, that we sort of go, stand up, open your eyes, close your eyes. Um, but there are reasons for it. I'm not going to do that now. I'd like you all to stay where you are and you can sit. I'm going to read some of the best bits from the Psalms. So do whatever you need to do to feel relaxed. I always love a good deep breath. Letting the air flow deep down to wherever you're holding tension. <clears throat> Believing that stuff is being released. Inviting the Holy Spirit to come and meet you. Inviting him to speak to you, to show you how much he loves you. He forgives your sins, everyone, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. He heals your diseases, set prisoners free. He gives sight to the blind. He redeems you. He has heard your cries. He is always close to the brokenhearted. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He protects your bones. Not one of them will be broken. He binds up your wounds. He turns your mourning into dancing. He clothes you with joy. He crowns you with love and mercy. He calls you his heir and anoints your head with oil. He knows some of you are waiting. Be strong and take heart. He is your refuge, a strong tower against the foe. He gives you refuge in the shelter of his wings. Be encouraged. He is with you while you wait. He knows some of you are thirsty. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside quiet waters. He refreshes your soul. He knows you. He created you in your inmost being. He knit you together in your mother's womb and he's watched you every day of your life. For as high as the heavens are above the earth from everlasting to everlasting, so great is his love for you. So great is his adoration of you. He is not like your earthly father or mother. He doesn't criticize or set impossible standards. He's not only proud of you when you're doing well, he's not absent, he's close to you. He loves you, all of you.